Do you get discouraged by rejection? Are you experiencing loss after loss with no end in sight? Well, I'm happy to tell you that you can overcome it. Today, you'll learn how to turn rejection into success, and you'll even learn how to trick your brain into being more of a positive thinker. Later, Ron Nearing, the former California Republican Party chair, will tell us how and why we should not be afraid to work on campaigns in hostile territory. My name is Tiffany Roberts from the Leadership Institute, and you're listening to the Lead Your Future podcast. Are you a college student or recent graduate frustrated by the lack of internship opportunities due to coronavirus? While many organizations have disbanded their internship programs, the Leadership Institute has pivoted online. Yes, you can intern with the Leadership Institute from the comfort of your own home. Visit leadershipinstitute.org internship to learn more. Hey guys, welcome to the Lead Your Future podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes and this podcast, please click the subscribe button and feel free to leave a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Leadership Institute and on Twitter at Leadership I-N-S-T. Do you have a topic that you're just dying to hear me talk about? Feel free to shoot me an email at troberts at leadershipinstitute.org and I'd be happy to make that happen. Now on to today's episode. I have not failed a thousand times. I only found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Those words were from Thomas Edison and are as true today as they have ever been. We're all familiar with those stories where the heroes always get back up and win simply because they won't stop fighting for what they believe in. With these three tips, getting back on your feet will be easier than ever. The first tip we have today is learn to smile at no. Smile through no 10,000 times and you will find the best and brightest yes. This is most commonly a lesson for sales, but it's one of the most valuable lessons in any profession to know that failure and rejection are opportunities to learn. Airbnb reached out to seven prominent investors in Silicon Valley back in 2008, looking for only $150,000 in exchange for 10% of the company. Five of them rejected the offer outright, and the other two just never replied. The creators of Airbnb kept working on their company unfazed and optimistic, and now that 10% is worth $25 billion. Those don't define you, and they should never take away your hope. After all, in transactions done over email, sales experts found that 17.9% of salespeople give up after four no's, even though 80% of prospects say no four times before they say yes. Even if you didn't get that job or land that snazzy deal, there's no reason to give up. No can certainly be a lesson, but it shouldn't be a word that discourages you. Rejection often has nothing to do with you at all in the first place. And if you really work to understand that, it might be much easier to stay positive the next time you come face-to-face with rejection. So what can you do to actually apply these ideas? Second up, we have, it's time to train your brain. According to Psychology Today in 2015, fear of failure actually leads to self-sabotage, which can turn simple tasks into terrifying monsters in your head. This drains your willpower, causes you to fail again, and even drives you to protect your ego by viewing the task as impossible. In order to protect you, your mind makes you give up entirely. 
It's a vicious cycle, but you're not hopeless. There are three steps that psychologists recommend to train your brain to stay positive. First up, we have take a step back. It's important to recognize what you do and don't have control over. Even just writing down the aspects of a problem you have control over and a list of those you don't has been shown to dramatically reduce levels of stress hormone cortisol and help you think more clearly. Next, take a deep breath. Willpower is a muscle. We need to treat it like one. So try to recognize how much willpower you're using on a daily basis when you're using it and when you feel like you're pumped versus when you're drained. Use that information to either push yourself or give yourself the rest we all need. And lastly, take control. There are two simple ways you can make your brain focus on the task and ignore that negative Nancy in your noggin. One is just by whistling or muttering while you're at your desk. This occupies your internal dialogue and lets executive functioning focus on the task. The other way is a quick cognitive reset. So keep your head in one place and quickly look back and forth, up and down, around the room, just with your eyes. This resets your executive functioning and prepares your brain to focus on a new task. The best of the best are those of us who get knocked down and refuse to give up. Now that you've looked at techniques to trick your brain into thinking positive, even when things look grim, you can make the best out of situations that don't go your way. And the last tip we have for today is failure is an opportunity to connect. One of Morton Blackwell's laws of public policy is, don't fully trust anyone until he has stuck with a good cause which he saw was losing. Failure shows who you are inside and what you truly care about most. Forbes expert in management and strategy, Sally Blount, shares with us three gifts that failure offers, humility, compassion, and openness. Humility is a recognition that we may need to rely on the strengths and experience of others. This vulnerability allows us to connect on levels we wouldn't be able to otherwise. When others face the same challenges we have, we can now offer that same compassion of knowing their struggles and how difficult they may be. The most important gift that failure can share is openness. A ready willingness to learn can often be lost when we excel but it's the only true key to growth of any kind. There's no reason to fear failure. If you go about it honestly, you'll come out of the blunder with closer friends, more wisdom, and greater strength than you've ever had before. Now stay right there. In just less than a minute, I'm going to sit down with Ron Nearing, and he's going to give us some of his own wisdom and advice for fighting back when you may lose one of the biggest campaigns of your life. My name is Tiffany Roberts from the Leadership Institute, and you're listening to the Lead Your Future podcast. We are in a culture war. It's no secret. And even the freedoms that make it possible are at stake. I'm here to tell you that we can win and that it starts with you. In LI's activism trainings, you will learn how to build coalitions, inspire activists, fundraise, and bring a light of hope to places where there is very little. Go to leadershipinstitute.org forward slash training and click activism. Again, that's leadershipinstitute.org forward slash training and click activism. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Lead Your Future podcast. I am now here with Ron Nearing. He is the Director of International Programs here at the Leadership Institute. Thank you so much for joining me. You bet. So first off, I just want to get your uh, kind of your background, um, what you do at LI in your position. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Since 2014, I've been the director of international programs where we work with conservative uh, parties, leaders, and organizations around the world to bring uh, training in political technology that is the ability to organize and communicate uh, to, uh, to our friends around the world who are helping to fight battles for free markets and limited government in their part of the world. So I know that you actually ran for lieutenant governor in uh, California. Could you give us a little bit of a ex- uh, background on that and what that experience was like? Sure, sure. I have been chairman of the California Republican Party from 2007 to 2011. And as we entered the 2014 election cycle, I was looking around and, and noticed that for several different statewide offices, there were no good Republicans running. In some cases, there were no Republicans running. And therefore, uh, you know, there, there's a real need, even in races where uh, victory is unlikely, you still need good candidates to go forward and be good representatives of the party to help articulate uh, uh, a better alternative to the failed status quo uh, and the like. And so I called up a colleague of mine and we, we chatted about it. I chatted with other friends and contacts of mine. And the more we talked about it, the less crazy of an idea it sounded like. Uh, and, uh, and so ultimately, I, I threw my hat in the ring uh, and, uh, and launched a campaign. There were two other Republicans who uh, ran uh, in the primary, uh, but they were not credible. And so I emerged in our top two primary system. It was Gavin Newsom and myself who emerged out of the primary. And then we went on to the general election campaign. And, uh, and I must say, it was uh, probably the most fun that I've ever had in politics until that point. Um, because here you are running the Republican nominee, major party nominee for a statewide office in the biggest state of the country. I knew the state very well. I knew the issues very well from my time as state party chairman. So I was well prepared for it. And therefore, I got to go out for uh, for seven, eight months and go out and articulate and advocate, not as the political party leader, but as the candidate and would-be government official in terms of what my vision was, uh, pr- proposing a better vision uh, and an alternative to that uh, to that uh, failed status quo in Sacramento. So it was uh, it, w- it was a terrific experience. I'm very, very thankful uh, that, uh, that, that I ran and very thankful to the support of those people who backed me up. Well, what was it like as a Republican chair, being a Republican chair and arguably, arguably the most democratic state in the country? What was like that? What was that like? Well, fortunately, it was a it was a really great year for Republicans, uh, and so 2014 uh, was a time when Barack Obama had won re-election in 2012, and 2014 nationally was a very good year. I won 43 percent of the vote, which was a very good uh, performance uh, going up against an incumbent from the majority party who was seeking re-election. Uh, and uh, the lieutenant governor's office is an office that we had not won since 1978. So there wasn't a great expectation that I was that we were going to win. But nonetheless, it was a great experience on, uh, in any case because we got to put forth better ideas to the uh, to what we have coming out of out of Sacramento. And uh, and that's part of having a healthy two-party system. Political parties are very bad at holding themselves accountable. They require a competitive system uh, to uh, to be held accountable. And I was delighted uh, to be a part of that. So I met with thousands of people around the country, did hundreds of interviews uh, with uh, newspapers, large and small. And uh, and it really was, it was a terrific experience. And I encourage people to do it. I think you should always go in with your eyes open, uh, though. I think candidates really have to be well grounded in reality. 
it would have been very easy for me to go out and say to people, oh, please support my campaign and we're going to win. You know, please donate $5,000 to my campaign. And, and with that, you know, we are definitely going to win. Candidates have to have realistic expectations. So I take a look at this office. Again, we had not won the office since 1978. I was running against an incumbent seeking re-election uh, and, uh, uh, you know, for an office which my party had not won in, you know, several decades. And so, therefore, uh, you ha- the, one of the great things in politics is that you get to define victory. Victory usually is interpreted or assumed to be winning the office or winning election to whatever the office is, but it's not necessarily that case. And it can't be that case in every case because some seats we're not going to win. But as the candidate, you get to define victory. And so how I defined victory was, number one, I had to win the primary. So because if I was a former state Republican chairman and I didn't win the primary, that'd be a setback and that you know, that wouldn't be good. So number one, I had to win the primary. Number two, I was going to help every other Republican candidate who I could possibly help uh, and uh, and champion their election as well, because there were plenty of other Republicans who were my teammates who were on the ballot and who were more likely to win uh, than I was. And I was going to help them. Number three, I wanted to articulate a positive, forward-looking alternative to what the Democrats had offered. Uh, and, uh, and then finally, uh, I wanted to be a champion for some of those ideas that I really care about, uh, and uh, uh, particularly in terms of making California more economically competitive for the middle class so people don't have to go to Arizona and Nevada to visit their grandkids, which is happening so much because young people can't get ahead, they can't afford a home, and so on. And so by each of those measures, uh, I succeeded. And a bonus to that was that uh, two years later, when Senator Ted Cruz was running for president and he needed a California state chairman. Uh, I was in a good position and I became his California state chairman. Then when he needed a national spokesman, I became the national spokesman for the campaign. That may not have happened if I hadn't run statewide in 2014. So it's a mistake for people to think, well, you ran for office, you lost, you know, you're all washed up. If you take a look at people like Abraham Lincoln, Newt Gingrich, other people, uh, you know, a lot of winning is better than losing, but winning is only the end of a chapter, not the entire book. Yeah. Losing is usually the time when you learn the most. And it seems like, it seems like candidates can sometimes get scared of the idea of running in an area where, you know, Republican hasn't won in a certain amount of time and people, candidates can get scared away from that when in all reality, they shouldn't. Well, again, it's a matter of calibrating expectations. So you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest with your supporters. You cannot go out and mislead your supporters about what your what the likelihood is of winning. And so many candidates think that they have to predict that they're going to win, that they have to predict that if someone volunteers for the campaign or donates to the campaign, that that is going to make the difference uh, in victory. I never promised that at all because I've been involved in politics for 32 years now. Uh, and so when I would be asked, well, are you going to win? I would. My answer was, who wins or loses this race is going to be up to the voters to decide. Uh, my job as a candidate, as a Republican nominee, is to put forth a better set of ideas uh, to challenge the status quo, to provide the voters with a choice, and then ultimately they're going to decide. And so the election result at the end wasn't a big surprise. Uh, but, you know, we did pretty well with 43% of the vote, and uh, and and the experience was great. And I, uh, I contributed to the, you know, getting the Republican message out in that in that cycle. And that was, that was terrific. 
Yeah, that's what that's what's important. So uh, what about when you were running for lieutenant, lieutenant governor of California in 2014? It seems like you fought an uphill battle. What were some of your biggest takeaways from that? Well, certainly any time that you're running against an incumbent, incumbents are usually favored to win re-election in the absence of any type of scandal or, you know, and so on. And so um, one thing is the, the day your opponent attacks you is a great day. It, it may not feel that good, and that might be a little counterintuitive, but it really is a great day, the day that your opponent attacks you, because that means that you're a threat. Uh, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind because nobody kicks a dead dog. Uh, and therefore, you want to get, as a challenger, you want to get to the point where your opponent starts to attack you. And then you have to be prepared for that, uh, of, of course. One thing that is uh, is not surprising is, um, is that many political reporters will ask very predictable questions. Well, you know, they'll ask a question six months before the election. Well, the polls show the incumbent is 50 points ahead of you. You know, why do you think you have any chance? And political reporters should know better in that polls that are taken 60 days, you know, I'm sorry, six months before an election, no one has heard from the challenger whatsoever. No one, normal people aren't thinking about the election. They have no idea that, that, uh, that a challenger uh, even exists. And what always happens is that polls bef- between challengers and incumbents always narrow as you get, in general, as you get closer to the election. And, and so in the first poll, I was down by maybe 40 points. And in the last poll, I got, you know, 43% of the vote. So things narrow. And if you're experienced in politics and you have the background to push back against predictable questions like that, which if you answer it incorrectly, can de-energize your supporters, can make it look like you're a loser, you know, et cetera. So it's important for candidates to, have a, to really understand the political process, to really understand how an effective campaign is run, to really understand the flow of a campaign and therefore what some of those predictable questions are so that you can push back on them and, and respond to them effectively uh, as, you, as you go forward. Now, a lot of stu- a lot there's a lot of students out there and um, a lot of people, recent graduates, and they they are interested in running on campaigns, working on campaigns. What advice would you give to rising leaders in heavily blue states like California or New York or other states? So first is any state in the country. It doesn't matter if it's Massachusetts or California, New York, Delaware, Maryland. These are all quote democratic states or left leaning states. Within those states, there are always conservative elected officials in representing conservative parts of the state. They just don't happen to be the majority. So in any state, from the largest to the smallest, Rhode Island and Delaware to Texas and California, there are plenty of opportunities every election cycle to get involved in a campaign and gain that political uh, experience. Of course, you should always look for campaigns that somehow, you know, that have a semblance of their act together where you have, you know, it's it's a much better experience if you're working with a candidate who has some idea what they're doing and have gotten some training and have some background that if, you, you know, someone who's completely naive, who's going to create a bad experience for everybody. But even working on an unsuccessful campaign can be very enlightening. My number one piece of advice for young people is don't do anything stupid because because of the internet and social media, mistakes last a lot longer. So you can do something dumb when you're 20 or when you're 25, uh, and you're much more likely to pay the price for that later on in life. Uh, and that's not fair, but it's how the world is working. So be in, you know, be careful 
but what you send by text message, what you post to social media, what you say, and so on, uh, because chances are if it's done digitally, there's a record of that and, and you could be held accountable for that. Uh, and that could have been something dumb. So don't do that. Uh, um, always hold yourself to the highest ethical standards. And if something feels like it's wrong in any type of context, then don't do it. Uh, and if someone asks you to do something that you know is unethical, don't do it. Uh, and be aware of that and seek to avoid uh, those type of problems. Because unfortunately, a lot of people only learn that lesson after they make the mistake and it could wind up costing them. And it's, it, it's unfortunate when that happens. Yeah, I wish I heard that advice, I think, a lot sooner, probably before college, because I feel like a lot of people, they go into college and they just do stupid things on Twitter and on other social media platforms, and they don't realize it till afterwards, after they do something wrong. Luckily, I've kind of caught up to that really soon and really quick because I got involved so quickly in politics. But that's something I've I've seen I've seen it ruin people's lives. And it's not it's definitely not a fun thing to to happen to somebody at all. Yep, it's not fair, but it happens. So we have to be aware of that. Yeah. Um, so how about an election loss? What what can you how can you use that to um, gain gain ground and move towards kind of a brighter future later on after after a loss? People can lose an election and uh, and it's not the end of the world. Uh, you know, you're going to live you're going to live a lo nice, long life. There are plenty of opportunities uh, and uh, failure is a, a greater teacher than success. However, just because you lost the election, that doesn't mean that you were a failure because you can go into a race. Look, we need, we have, particularly here in a state like California, we need lots of conservatives who will step up and run in races that are very difficult to win. Uh, and we have to honor those people who do so, who are ethical, uh, who step up and run. That doesn't mean that everybody who runs is ethical. There are plenty of people who run and they wind up running scams and so on. And that's unfortunate. So I'm not referring to them. What I am referring to are people who are of good character, who care about ideas, who step up, who run for office, who take a shot, who run for a difficult office, who carry the banner of their ideas and inspire people in a better uh, uh, toward a, a better solution to the challenges that we face today. Uh, and we and we honor those people, but we should calibrate our definition of victory to match that situation. So, we're, uh, you know, a Republican candidate who runs against Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco is probably not going to win. However, they can still win depending upon how they define victory. Did they succeed in getting onto the ballot? That's a win. Did they succeed in generating some earned media? Did they succeed in challenging the status quo? Did they put forward some, uh, some ideas? And if you do that, uh, then you can walk away with a win, or at least something that advances your ability to win, you know, uh, victories uh, in the future. So th that that is for sure. What's important is to not have a, ca a campaign become a a loss that is a genuine setback that genuinely puts you in a worse position afterward than you were before. But that only happens in a couple of circumstances. One of those could be if you run your campaign into debt. So. You don't want to be that person who runs for office. You you know you took on a race you probably were, going to, were not going to win, but you sank your campaign into debt, and now you've stiffed vendors or employees or contractors or other people. And no one should do that. No campaign should end in debt, win or lose. So that's point number one. Number two is don't say things during that campaign that you're going to regret 
in the future. And that can include creating false expectations. Oh, vote for me and we're going to defeat Nancy Pelosi. You know, we're going to elect the conservative Republican congressman in San Francisco. If you claim that and then you lose, now you've damaged your credibility because people in the future will look at you and say, well, that person can't be believed because they, they say, you know, wacky stuff. On the other hand, if you're a Republican running against a Nancy Pelosi and you say, look, this is an uphill district uh, for Republicans, no doubt about that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, San Francisco is, uh, uh, you know, is a city with serious problems. We could have better representation. And I'm, my job is to put forth some better ideas, and then the voters are going to decide. That's a better approach than setting false expectations. So you can keep on running and not succeed so long as you don't produce genuine setbacks, but you control whether that happens more than external factors. Um, so just for my last question, um, where could somebody go if they're interested in running for a campaign, um, they want to work on one, what resources are out, out there for them? Well, one of the things that was so advan- advantageous to me is that while I was in college and immediately thereafter, I attended seven different training programs from the Leadership Institute. I attended the Student Publication School, Youth Youth Leadership School, Capitol Hill Staff Training School, Foreign Service Opportunity School, you name it, I took it. Uh, And those schools were incredibly helpful to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, they taught me a bunch of stuff that I never learned when I got my political science degree. I have a political science degree, but I didn't learn about how to win a political campaign uh, because that's not part of that curriculum per se. Um, so I learned a whole lot, but then I also met a whole bunch of people, some of whom I still know today. Uh, and that was very helpful to my career as well. So if you're young, you're just getting involved in politics, or maybe you've been on a campaign or two already, get as much training and knowledge as you can by attending programs from Leadership Institute. But then also when you attend those schools, take the opportunity to get to know the faculty and the others, the other people who attend there. And that network of yours uh, will be helpful to you uh, th- potentially throughout your career. That's great advice because even hosting my trainings, I've met so many people that I know later on, I'm still going to be in contact with them on LinkedIn, even just over text, over email. So those connections are always extremely useful for your career later on. Um, But that's that's all the time I have uh, for today. So thank you, Ron. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, You're very well spoken and provided a lot of words of wisdom that I'm sure um, our listeners will appreciate. So thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Lead Your Future podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share, or leave a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is the Leadership Institute's mission to increase the number and effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. That's why I bring you on-camera TV trainings, public speaking workshops, debate workshops, speech writing workshops, and so many more. If you're interested in taking one of these trainings, feel free to check out our website at leadershipinstitute.org forward slash training. The Lead Your Future podcast is produced and edited by Tiffany Roberts with support from Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell. If you want to learn more about the Leadership Institute and see behind-the-scenes photos, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to Leadership Institute on YouTube.